Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to another edition of the Shrewsbury Biscuit Podcast. This is my last special of the Darwin Festival. Um, you may have realised that I haven't really been releasing shows as frequently as I was last week. And, um, well, yeah, that was because we've had, uh, had a lot going on this week in the family. Uh, you know, uh, the problem when you run a one-man show, my one-man band... I am the equivalent of that guy that walks up and down banging a drum whilst tapping a tambourine on his on his foot with a gazoo in his mouth. <laughs> uh, when when the, the sort of my family infrastructure gets sort of uh, difficult, uh, I kind of have to step in and become super dad or super husband, you know. And that's pretty much what's happened this week. And uh, you may remember last week I was telling you that well, you know, my my, my little boy, and my wife were. You know, a really bad cough, really, really bad cough. That was keeping them both awake all night, and I couldn't exactly uh, sit there and complain about it. So I had to help them out. So you know, glasses of water, there, there, you'll be okay. Uh, there was a lot of that um, during the week, um, and then they both decided to get a stomach bug uh, <laughs> straight after. So there's not been a lot of sleeping this week, and there's been a lot of um, nurse dad. Yeah, that's been me, nurse dad. Uh, we're looking after my family, so I haven't been able to get out to a lot of events. Um, uh, this side of the of the festival, um, I got to a talk on Monday the eighteenth, which was um, a talk um, called Darwin and the Invisible Gardener. This was done by a gentleman called um, Father Andrew Pinsent, and he is a very well known particle physicist who works at or worked at CERN. Um, he did a great talk on how faith and science can run alongside each other and how it's possible to believe in things like the Big Bang and evolution and still um, be a father in a Catholic church. So that was really, really inspiring. And Friday, uh, Friday I got to a really, really inspiring talk. This is a talk by... Gwen Burnett, and it, who is, by the way, uh, Darwin's great, great, great granddaughter. Um, but I thought more important than the fact that she's uh, related to Darwin, she was given a really, like, <laughs> a really important talk about um, the the peace process in Colombia because it's it's a problem that's been going on in Colombia for a long time. And if you you're a profound listener to the show, you may remember I'm married to a Colombian lady, so um, <laughs> I was definitely interested in this. And um, you know, I, I'm understand I'm on the understanding of, of what's going on in Colombia and how big of a problem it is. It's it's like a larger scale version of what happened with the IRA um, and with the, the Good Friday Agreement, how everything was resolved. Uh, but like this this problem that's been going on in Colombia has been going on for decades. Um, it's a fight between uh, the FARC and the Colombian government. Um, but, you know, um, Gwen will um, explain this in a talk. What I'm going to do is I'm going to include her whole lecture, a whole talk at the end of this. Um, it's been a it's been a really interesting uh, festival, this Darwin Festival. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned so much. And even like at events, I'm seeing the same people go made some good friends like Tim Dawes, who's coming back on the show, by the way. We only had a small talk um, a couple of, a few days ago, um, but I want to get him on the show properly because I really like him and he's got, he has got an agenda, but I really want to find out more about him as well. And I wanted to say thank you to everyone that supported me through this, this Darwin Festival. It's not been easy because it was, it was like one of the first big events that we picked up as a show. And during that, during that process, I've had lots of 
lots of problems hit me with the family being poorly and things like that. So it's been really hard to kind of get out and be part of this festival. I've kind of done what I did. I wanted to carry on the same pace at the beginning of the festival as a, as a, you know, all the way through. I wanted to carry on that. And if I'd have kept momentum and not had to stop to look after my family, we might have had that. But then again, you might have been fed up with my voice by now then. So maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Um, thank you uh, for uh, to, to Gwen as well, uh, who's been brilliant. Uh, we've been talking back and to about this. We did do a, a Facebook live feed. You may have seen that. Uh, but <laughs> the problems with modern day technology is it's great to have all these toys and devices to play with. Um, but uh, as far as Wi-Fi is concerned and Internet, um, we're always quite limited. And during this talk, uh, we my wife, very uh, I was really grateful to her. She held the, the phone up and she recorded the lecture on Facebook Live, but we lost a bit of signal halfway through, so it, it split into two. Um, and people are from Shrewsbury may have been wondering, what's this guy playing stuff about Columbia um, on a on a uh, on the group for the Shrewsbury Biscuit podcast? And I, the, the, the simple answer is, is because it's important for all of us. If this peace process is successful and, you know, the FARC and Colombia do come to a complete peace. Uh, we could learn from that. And the lessons that we learn from that, we can spread across the world. And where there's conflict around the world, maybe we can we can use that same process to, to bring people into harmony. And that's what's most important, isn't it? You know, let's end conflict. Let's, end, let's stop people dying. Let's stop, you know, buildings from getting blown up. And, you know, let, let's learn to... Because I think if we're all on the same... Um, thought process if we're all going in the same direction and then we can we can we can develop things better can't we you know the world will be a better place <laughs> goes without saying and what i've just done is explained a very long way of saying peace good war bad bro uh, <laughs> and and gwen will uh will explain that um oh, she's amazing this woman uh she did a really good job um and so after this uh after this episode uh the shrewsbury biscuit will come back to normal once a week talking about different people from different kinds of backgrounds, talking about different things. I'll be back on an interview uh, style because I kind of hate talking to myself on a podcast. I love having a conversation with people. That's what I do best. I'm a conversationalist. I love talking to people. It's been a great way for me to do podcasting for as long as I've done it. Let's go back to that. Uh, we're gonna go, we've got some great interviews lined up. We've got some good things uh, to bring to you. So the Shrewsbury Biscuit is going to go on from that. Uh, thank you very much again, like I said, to everybody from the Darwin Festival. Thank you to, to Gwen, to Fiona from the Unitarian Church. She's been super, super. Uh, Paul Kirkbright, who's been a great uh, communicator throughout this process. And to Alex from Shrewsbury Bid, he's been brilliant, absolutely brilliant to me. He's helped my show grow and he's encouraged me to get stuck in and, and get involved with people. We very nearly brought you a, a, an interview with a guy from Washington um, who is a part of the a Darwin Festival that's going on there. Um, you know, it was a very short notice thing. I was like, hey, uh, we got a, a festival going on. Do you want to do an interview? And it was like, you know, it was like within a week. We couldn't manage to schedule it. So. Maybe next year, maybe next year for the, the Darwin Festival there, we can we can arrange something. So uh, fingers crossed for that. But I'm going to leave you with Gwen. And um, if you've got anything to add to this, you can get the show. You can email me at shrewsburybiscuitpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group, which is simply named the Shrewsbury Biscuit um, Podcast. And we can get us on Twitter at the Shrewsbury B1. I love you guys. Thank you very much for this. I'll leave you with Gwen. Peace out, guys. Thank you.
evening, everybody. Can you hear me around the back all right? My name's um, Patrick Petroni, um, and I have great pleasure and honour to introduce our speakers tonight. Uh, last week, I, I gave a talk here uh, on the work on, that we do on compassion. <coughs> tonight, you're going to hear someone who actually does it. Um, Gwen Bernier, as a studied literature at the Universities of Leeds and Cambridge, and has spent six years in Colombia, including with the International Centre for Transitional Justice and Peace Brigades International. She's published widely, uh, and most interestingly, her last book was entitled Chocolate, Politics, and Peacebuilding. An extraordinary combination of titles, which you will, I'm sure, elucidate on tonight. What I haven't, or I left to the end of my presentation, is that she's also Charles Darwin's great 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 granddaughter. But it's not for that reason that she's here tonight. She's here tonight because I've spent this afternoon privilege of talking with her uh, extensively and um, <clears throat> as an oldie it's lovely to see and hear from a generation that can offer us hope. Gwen. Thank you so much Patrick and, and it's a real pleasure and honour to be here this evening and thank you so much um, to the church for having me. Um, I'm going to tell you my story. Um, I'm a British grown-up. I grew brought up in London and I had a gap year in Paraguay, learned to speak Spanish, uh, studied literature, as Patrick said, in the, in the universities of Leeds and Cambridge, but I knew nothing about Colombia um, until I had the opportunity to go there uh, as a research intern for an international NGO. And I was doing research on the victims of grave human rights crimes in the country's conflict. And after four months, I, I was just absolutely fascinated by this complex country, and I didn't want to leave. So I applied for another job uh, with another NGO doing humanitarian work in one of the conflict regions in the northwest of Colombia, in Urabá. And it was there that I met the peace community of San José de Apartado, who is a, a rural community of peasant farmers who produce chocolate, hence the title of my book, uh, but I'm not going to talk about that tonight. Um, and this community had lived in the midst of left-wing guerrillas, right-wing paramilitaries and the Colombian army and had struggled to protect themselves and stay neutral and stay on their land in the midst of the conflict. Um, and when I returned to London after doing this work, I, I desperately wanted to carry on understanding what I had lived through for the last previous two years. So I decided to return to Colombia and do a master's and retrain as an anthropologist which I did at the National University of Colombia in Bogota. And while I was living in Bogota, studying anthropology and travelling every now and then to this community in this conflict region, I was also part of an organisation called Embrace Dialogue. Because when I returned to Colombia, I found myself in the midst of the Colombian peace process. And in this organisation, Embrace Dialogue, we were trying to create spaces where ordinary Colombians could get together with experts on different topics about peace and the peace process and have discussions with each other in a safe space 
in a way in which they could understand these complex issues that their country was undergoing. And I was witness to the complex emotions that a society is faced with when it tries to end war and build peace. And all of this convinced me that what I needed to do next for my PhD was to go to study the human beings in power in the Colombian government. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. So the talk I'm going to give has four parts. First of all, I'm going to give some context about Colombia. Then I'm going to very briefly explain what the research I did was and how I did it. Then the main part of the talk is going to be dedicated to explaining what I found out while I was doing my research. And finally, I'm going to try to offer you some conclusions for what do I think all of this means. So the context. In 2016, the word post-truth was chosen as word of the year by the Oxford Dictionaries, defined as circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. The use of the word had increased 2,000% in 2016, in particular the phrase post-truth politics, connected mostly with the Brexit vote and with the election of Donald Trump. But Colombia had its own post-truth moment in 2016, when, in October, it voted no to peace. Now, I was here for Brexit and in Colombia for the no vote and the peace referendum. The triumph of the no by only 50.2% was largely due to a staunch misinformation campaign deployed by the Democratic Centre, the political party of ex-president Álvaro Uribe, who had opposed the peace negotiations since they began in 2012. This misinformation campaign was extraordinarily powerful, targeting deep-seated emotions such as hate, fear and anger in a country that was already divided deeply after years of war. The campaign manager admitted afterwards they had deliberately, deliberately crafted their campaign messages to make people vote angry. The peace talks between the government of, the, of, San, of Juan Manuel Santos and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, sought to end 50 years of armed confrontation, the longest standing armed conflict in the Western Hemisphere. The negotiations had huge international backing. Experts were brought in from other peace processes, Northern Ireland, the Philippines, South Africa, El Salvador and elsewhere to advise. The resulting peace agreement was 297 pages long. It had five substantive points, as well as ending confrontation with the FARC, it sought to make structural reforms to prevent future violence. These included land reform, as Colombia is one of the most unequal countries in the world, broadening democratic participation, disarming the FARC and reincorporating their members into society, tackling the drug trafficking which has fueled and degraded the conflict since the 1980s, and redressing the rights of over 8 million victims of the conflict to truth, justice and reparations. Colombia is the first country to negotiate a peace deal since the creation of the International Criminal Court, and Colombia as a signatory to the Rome Statute therefore has the obligation to investigate, sentence and sanction those most responsible for grave human rights crimes. The peace agreement proposed three mechanisms to meet these obligations. A tribunal to judge the FARC, the army and third parties for their human rights abuses, which offers reduced and alternative non-jail sentences if they recognise their responsibility fully, participate in truth-telling and make reparations to the victims. A non-judicial truth commission to hear victims' testimonies and produce a report about what happened in the conflict. And a unit to search for the over 83,000 people disappeared by the conflict. 
The International Criminal Court supported this formula, saying it fulfilled Colombia's obligations under international law. A gender commission worked to ensure a gender focus in all aspects of the deal, a world first in peace processes. All this together made it the most complete of peace accords since 1989, according to the International Institute in charge of monitoring it, and President Santos was given the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016 for these efforts. The No campaign complained that the non-jail option meant complete impunity for the FARC. But their main strategy was not actually to criticise what was in the agreement, and most people voted without having read it. People thought they were voting against their children being influenced to become homosexual in schools and against abortion, because one of the main No campaign messages was that the peace process was going to impose gender ideology and destroy the traditional Colombian family unit. They thought they were voting against communism and what they called Castro-Chavism, because the No campaign proclaimed that if they voted yes, then the FARC would take power and Colombia would become the next Venezuela. Their campaign messages were spread on strident billboards around the country. Leaflets were handed out at traffic lights and campaigners took part in public debates. But crucially, they also spread their messages through social media, with memes and slogans all over Facebook and Twitter, and in particular WhatsApp chain messages full of lies proliferating uncontrollably. The FARC were going to be given prizes for terrorism. President Santos was secretly a FARC commander, and all pensions were to be docked by 12% in giving to the FARC. A national tribunal later classified the campaign as generalised deceit. The election results showed a country divided regionally. The rural, more peripheral areas mostly voted yes. The urban areas which had more electoral power mostly voted no apart from Bogota. This reflected the gap between rural and urban, which of course exists in any country, but in Colombia has been exacerbated by years of conflict, which has mostly taken part in the countryside. Those who knew the cost of war wanted it to end. Many of those who had voted against the peace deal had experienced the war less directly and had been fed a narrative for years under Uribe's government that the FARC were the only bad guys. Now, the FARC had done a lot of nasty things, but a negotiated peace deal depends on both sides recognising their wrongdoings and working together to end the suffering of millions. There was also 63% abstention, high even for Colombia, which generally has low electoral participation. <coughs> now, the reasons that President Santos decided to put such a crucial matter to a referendum are complex. Partly, he thought it was a way to silence the staunch opposition that the peace process had faced from the Democratic Centre Party. Partly, perhaps naively, he believed it was a way for people to appropriate the deal and be part of it by depositing their vote. The No campaign had said they were not against peace, they just wanted to make changes to the peace agreement. So Santos's team spent three, we three weeks in conversations with them, collating 60 points they wished to modify, then two weeks in Havana with the FARC, who accepted 58 of these 60. The other two were central to the deal, um, the participation of the FARC in politics and the option of alternative sentences if they fulfilled their legal obligations. The renegotiated deal was signed in November 2016, and instead of holding another referendum, Santos gave it to Congress to ratify, which they did unanimously but the Democratic Centre Party abstained. They refused to accept the New Deal, they continued to oppose it. They saw a political opportunity to build on their success in the referendum in the presidential elections of 2018. 
and they did so. Their candidate, Ivan Duque, is now the president of Colombia. The new peace agreement started to be implemented in December 2016. Some 13,000 members of the FARC disarmed, around 90% of the guerrilla force, which is very high for peace processes, and they have become a political party, also called FARC. But the peace agreement has faced a rocky start. First the referendum, and then the elections, have polarised the country even more deeply than before. So now I've told you the context of the story, um, and I'm not a fan of making facile, simplistic comparisons, and I'm not an expert on Brexit, I'm not an expert on Trump's America, but despite the obviously huge differences between the three countries, I'm sure you'll see more than a few global resonances in this story. What I want to do in this talk is suggest some lessons from Colombia on how different societies might work against the post-truth. By now, I imagine you'll be wondering why, when the peace referendum in Colombia was obviously such a failure, I'm suggesting we can look to Colombia for lessons. Well, let's see if I can convince you of this by the end of the talk. And I certainly think that it's about time the global north started looking to the global south for lessons, uh, rather than the other way around. But first, I'm going to explain to you what was the research that I did for my PhD. So, after the referendum, hundreds of people who had supported the yes vote criticised the government for failing to do peace pedagogy, by which they meant dissemination and explanation of the actual contents of the peace agreement. In Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement was posted to every household and 71% of people voted in favour. But although Colombia has a fairly high literacy rate, recent international tests show that 43% of Colombian students do not have the reading level necessary for participating productively in life. The No campaign was able to tell lies and distort truth about the peace agreement because there was low public awareness about its actual contents. The 297 pages of the first agreement were made widely available, they were printed in national newspapers, but they were deeply technical, full of acronyms and legalese. But despite this criticism, there had been a government peace pedagogy team since 2014, which had gone round the country doing workshops with different audiences on the peace process. This was the first time in the history of peace negotiations in Colombia that a peace pedagogy strategy was used to inform citizens about a peace process in parallel to negotiations with adversaries, and it was also a global innovation. The fact this criticism, there wasn't enough peace pedagogy, was so widespread drew my attention to, to its uniqueness. If you'll forgive me again for employing a simplistic comparison, no one in the UK travelled the country explaining what the EU is and what might happen if we left or remained. British society did not demand this of our government. Perhaps we should have done. Now, referenda are obviously about many other things than the topic on the ballot. They are a chance to express anger at government and frustration with the way things are. Whether government peace pedagogy in Colombia could have altered the referendum outcome if it had been done better or more is speculation. Instead, I was interested in how government peace pedagogy had developed and evolved, who the peace pedagogy team were, and how they delivered this peace pedagogy around the country. So for my PhD, I spent a year with the peace pedagogy team to find out what they had done pre-referendum and what they were doing during the first steps in implementation of the peace agreement. Anthropological research, as I'm an anthropologist, uh, depends on two things. Firstly, spending long periods of time among the human beings one wishes to study. In my case, the peace pedagogy team in the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace, the branch of the Colombian Presidency in charge of the peace negotiations. 
This gives one access to their everyday social world and the multiple dynamics at work therein. Second, an effort to see things from their point of view, to put yourself in their shoes. This does not mean necessarily to agree with them, to be on their side, or even to like them. It means recognising them as human beings, shaped by multiple cultural and political forces. It means approaching them with compassion, which in Hannah Arendt's terms means seeing the other as ourselves in other circumstances. Despite the rise of the corporate state, national governments are still at the top of the chain when it comes to power and decision-making, for example, in making peace. So it seemed appropriate to ask who the people in the Colombian government were and what their experience was in their attempts to explain peace to Colombian society. So that's the research that I did, that's the fieldwork I did. So in the next section I'm going to try to explain how government peace pedagogy developed. Why does communicating peace matter? Public opinion hinges on the perceived legitimacy of peace talks, which fluctuate naturally between social sectors and across time. In Colombia, multiple factors influenced public opinion on peace. Previous attempts at negotiating with the FARC had broken down in 2002, and the idea of a negotiated peace had lost credibility. Álvaro Uribe was elected in 2002 based on a strong anti-FARC sentiment after these talks failed, and he strengthened this throughout his presidency to the point that in 2008 there was a huge march, millions of people marching in Colombia to protesting against the FARC. Uribe successfully delegitimated the FARC struggle by scripting the, interna the internal armed conflict as a terrorist threat. This made it difficult for the sectors of society that supported him to recognise FARC as a political actor, someone you could negotiate with. This meant that the Santos government faced a serious challenge communicating to public opinion about the peace process. However, despite ongoing opposition from Uribe's party, there was also wide public support for the peace process, which increased as time went on and negotiations progressed, and this arguably won Santos's re-election for a second term in 2014 with a mandate to continue. It was the referendum which swung things the other way, which is, of course, the risk of referendum. The public phase of the peace talks began in 2012 with a framework agreement which the government and the FARC had agreed in a previous exploratory phase. This framework agreement established the agenda and the principles of negotiations. One, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Agreements, therefore, were not binding until there was a final agreement signed. Two, negotiations would take place without a ceasefire. And three, confidentiality. Confidentiality was important because the previous negotiations <coughs> with the FARC had been publicly televised and suffered immense political pressure as a result. In the framework agreement, the parties agreed to report regularly from the negotiating table on their pro progress. This was initially limited to a website and joint communiques after each round of negotiations. When the chief government negotiators visited Colombia, they held closed-door meetings with interest groups such as the press and the business sector to share information. But although the government tried to communicate the broad brushstrokes of the peace process through speeches and in the media, the idea of engaging society more broadly with educational strategies was not contemplated in the framework agreement. The framework agreement did, however, seek citizen participation in the peace process. Organised civil society, social movements, human rights defenders, victims' organisations, women's groups, indigenous Afro-Colombian and Campesino communities, Youth groups, universities, think tanks, NGOs, trade unions, and so on, all clamoured for more information and a chance to have their say. 
The channels of participation included nine national and regional forums organised on different points of the agenda by the National University of Colombia and the United Nations, in which nearly 7,000 people participated, and forms that people could fill out to submit proposals, either via the website or on paper forms, which the President asked governors and mayors around the country to help distribute. A small team in the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace was charged with orchestrating this citizen participation. They travelled to the different regions to talk to governors, mayors and civil society and encourage them to participate. But in order to invite participation, they quickly realised they first had to explain participation in what? It became clear that negotiating, communicating and maintaining confidentiality were difficult tasks to juggle. Several negotiators told me how challenging it was finding the right balance and of course the priority was always the negotiations, which are themselves no mean feat. So at first, due to the confidentiality principle, this little participation team did not feel able to talk freely, as only the chief negotiators were allowed to speak publicly, and they were mostly based in Havana. So the early presentations of the participation team were limited in terms of information. But requests flooded in for them to visit different regions and disseminate basic information that there was available about the peace process. In response to this clamour, the participation team became a pedagogy team and grew in numbers. Initially, peace pedagogy efforts were very cautious. The government did not want to transmit false expectations to a society about a peace process that could fail for a fourth time in as many decades, which did in fact undergo various crises that could have led to failure, such as the FARC's kidnapping of an army general in November 2014. And communicating is also negotiating. When government representatives made speeches about the peace process, this affected the negotiating table. This was especially true in regions with a strong FARC presence because communities who'd lived alongside the FARC for years would report back to them, saying anything in public as the government was delicate. The peace pedagogy was also excessively technical as they feared to make technical mistakes, but they gradually realised it was more important to engage with ordinary Colombians in accessible non-specialist language. Then in September 2014, the confidentiality principle was relaxed. Speculations about what was being negotiated had been circulating in the media, and the Democratic Centre Party was taking advantage of this to fuel mistrust about the peace process. The negotiating parties decided to publish the three draft agreements they had reached to date on land reform, political participation, and drug trafficking, <coughs> with the aim of debunking some of these rumours. But many of the speculations had taken root in people's minds and were difficult to shake. One lesson here is that in political processes that seek to make major transformations, citizen participation, communication and pedagogy are three interrelated elements that must be complementary in order to send a consistent message to society. Also in 2014, the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace published a series of informative booklets to explain what was being negotiated and distributed them around the country. These were concise and accessible and were updated as the negotiations progressed covering different aspects of the peace process and addressing different specialist audiences, including women, victims, the religious sector and indigenous communities. And they worked with indigenous organisations to produce content in various indigenous languages for the indigenous 3.4% of the Colombian population. They also developed a free online course comprising video lectures given by government negotiators on different aspects of the peace process discussing peace processes comparatively and trying to debunk the myths that were circulating. This was taken by approximately 35,000 Colombians. 
The booklets and online courses were efficient ways to reach thousands of Colombians, given that the pedagogy team never had more than 10 members at any one time for a huge country of 45 million people. In 2014 and 2015, the team ran a series of local peace conferences in 22 conflict-affected regions, co-hosted with civil society organisations. These had two objectives. First, to explain progress in Havana by a presentation made by an official from the government negotiation team, followed by comments by an independent expert on each topic, such as academics working on land reform, for example. And secondly, to listen to local people's visions and concerns for peace and feedback to the negotiating table. In these meetings, the team encountered the deeply rooted mistrust in the state that was prevalent after decades of entrenched violence and state abandonment. This affected the way people received and evaluated messages about the peace process. When the messages came from a government representative, there was an a priori negative perception because of this historic distrust and aggravated by the ongoing armed conflict. Many people were afraid to ask questions about peace in a public forum. <coughs> But in the coffee breaks, people approached the peace pedagogy team and asked questions face to face. The team began to realise that peace pedagogy was not just about conveying information, but being present, listening, being patient and sympathetic, understanding the complex emotions that people <coughs> felt towards the peace process, fear, uncertainty, anger, and recognising that the state had also been a part of the conflict. For many members of the team, it was the first time visiting these regions and meeting the victims of the conflict. They got better over time. The role of the co-convening civil society organisations was crucial as they had local expertise and the trust of the local communities. Now this kind of peace pedagogy was directed at the most conflict-affected regions, the territories which would, of course, be most affected by the implementation of the agreement also. The logic was to prepare the ground for implementation rooted also in a moral recognition of the historical injustices suffered by these people and recognising the peace-building knowledge and capacities that they had in these territories. But it was not designed to legitimate or sell a peace process, nor encourage people to vote in a referendum. That was not the objective. In 2016, negotiations in Havana entered their final stretch, and Santos announced there would be a referendum. The peace pedagogy team suddenly had to shift from their logic of preparing communities in the rural areas for implementation of the deal to a logic of explaining the peace process to sceptical urban audiences in order that they could make an informed decision with their vote. They divided efforts into different sectors, designing different strategies to communicate to each one what the peace deal would mean for them. These included the military, women's organisations, ethnic communities, the business sector, Colombians abroad, and others. For young people, there was a competition to do their own peace pedagogy via videos and radio. 136,000 young people participated and designed informative content to reach their peers. For the religious sector, a practicing and academic theologian was hired to travel the country speaking with faith groups. There were workshops for regional media editors to learn about the peace process and brainstorm ideas together on how to communicate it. For public servants, a travelling exhibition was designed with informative panels about the peace agreement which rotated through the different ministries. But during, 16, but during 2016, the misinformation campaign, spearheaded by Álvaro Uribe and the Democratic Centre Party, also grew. 
In this context, the peace pedagogy team struggled to position positive information-based messages, but frequently had to start by debunking myths, putting the government on the defensive. So it is clearly useful to include an information-based pedagogy strategy prior to a referendum on a topic of national import, and this should be complementary to, but separate from, traditional campaign-based strategies. In Colombia, however, it was clearly a case of too little, too late. After the unexpected referendum result, which the polls had not predicted, and the renegotiation of the deal, the peace pedagogy team had little time to reflect critically on what they had learned. They had to accompany the first steps in implementation. In January 2017, the FARC combatants began to arrive in the 26 disarmament and reincorporation zones, where they were to spend seven months handing in their weapons to a UN mission and preparing for reincorporation into society. The pedagogy priority in this period was to explain to communities and local authorities in these remote municipalities what was happening, especially the rules around the ceasefire and the disarmament process. Occasionally, these sessions were done jointly between the Office of the High Commissioner and members of the FARC and the UN mission. I attended one of these in the municipality of Dabeba in a conflict region in northwest Colombia. For local people, seeing the government and the FARC speaking in the same event, saying they had different interpretations of the peace process maybe, but that they were committed to working to a common goal, had great symbolic impact. It didn't matter if people took on board the information they were saying, it was just the fact of seeing them speaking from the same hymn sheet. Um, and similarly, they were also very impacted symbolically by the presence of high-level military officials from other countries who were speaking about their technical role verifying the laying down of weapons of the FARC. So this coordinated presence of the FARC, the government and the UN transmitted trust. It began to normalise the presence of the FARC in public life as before then they had been obviously in, in, in clandestinity and showed that what until that moment had just been discourse or words on paper was fast translating into reality on the ground. Now this only happened a few times but it was highly valued by audiences. I actually think it could have been used more widely but I think the reason it wasn't was because there was never any real collaboration at the top level between Pre President Santos and the FARC leader, Rodrigo Londoño. If they had considered conveying the possibility of collaboration via symbolic acts, such as joint peace pedagogy, this might have, have paved the way better for peace. The FARC finished disarming and began reincorporation in August 2017. During the remainder of the presidency of Santos, implementation of the peace deal progressed slowly. The peace agreement was translated into laws, new institutions were created for the land reform and the transitional justice mechanisms, and responsibilities were distributed across multiple institutions. Pedagogy on implementation became increasingly complex as each day brought new details about every entity's progress. But communities continued to clamour for peace pedagogy to be informed about what was going on, so the Office of the High Commissioner played an umbrella role explaining the peace agreement but inviting local representatives of each agency to explain their specific work. The referendum result had shown the importance of taking into account people's emotions in a context of polarisation. The peace pedagogy team thought that perhaps previous strategies had been overly technical and, rather than transmitting the exact details of each point on the agreement, they needed to engage people's emotions. So they started a new project in 2017 working with artists, teachers and journalists from the different regions of Colombia 
to create new pro-peace narratives and mobilize people's emotions in favor of peace with cult culture and art. In regional workshops, some 40 members of regional civil society got together and agreed on the narrative In the I Trust in Vosconfio, which sought to promote cross-sectoral trust as a crucial aspect of peace building. They produced a series of radio jingles, video clips, magazines, graffiti murals, and carried out local actions such as concerts and high school short story competitions. And a national full-length song, La Confianza, Trust, was written and recorded by two regional singer-songwriters with participation from two nationally famous singers. And this was launched at the official Independence Day concert in Cali in July 2018. But it matters who is speaking. All of these things were great, but one of my concerns was the profile of the peace pedagogy team, which mostly comprised quite junior people without much teaching experience or experience working with conflict-affected communities. The negotiations in Havana were the priority, so the government budget went on that, and peace pedagogy from the beginning until, until, after, until implementation was financed mostly by the international community, including the UK, so our taxes are being used for some quite good things uh, in Colombia. Uh, many of the people in the office of the High Commissioner were working in the state for the first time, specifically because they believed in the peace process. They were very hardworking. They were technocrats rather than civil servants, many with postgraduate studies in peace and conflict. Lots of civil society leaders I know valued them highly because that was new in the Colombian state. However, the pedagogy team I saw in 2017 and 2018 were more junior than before the referendum. They had learned their technical script, they knew the peace agreement inside out, but their faces, accents, clothing, all revealed them as upper middle class from the capital Bogota, which clashed starkly in these rural areas where the FARC were disarming. Now on its own, this culture clash is not necessarily a problem, I don't think, but because of their lack of experience, they were unable to overcome the striking chasm their presence evoked in these places between rich and poor, urban and rural, and those who have and have not suffered the costs of war. The other challenge was the pre-electoral context. Having had the maximum two periods allowed, Santos could not run again, and the debate in the 2018 presidential election centered on which president would continue implementation of the agreement. This was an adverse context for peace pedagogy, because peace became framed as an increasingly political electoral issue, undermining issues to um, attempt to position it as a public good, an issue pertaining to all Colombians, regardless of political ideology. The Democratic Center campaigned saying they would shred the agreement. They won, and their candidate, Ivan Duque, took office on 7th of August last year. This was a blow to all who had supported the peace process. Today, Colombia is experiencing a new cycle of violence, over 400 social leaders have been killed since the deal was signed, many local people who advocated or participated in some aspects of the peace process, mostly by paramilitary groups who sympathised with the Democratic Centre Party's radical stance. This is not to say simplistically that the government is behind the killings. However, just as the UK saw a spike in hate crime after our referendum, there is a connection in Colombia between the new cycle of violence and the rhetoric encouraged by the Democratic Centre. People feel their hatred is legitimated. This is a vicious cycle. The legitimation of violence against others demonized by public opinion fuels government legislation that enables new cycles of violence and vice versa. Nearly 100 members of the FARC who demobilized have also been killed 
and around 2,000 of those who demobilised have returned to arms, frustrated with the lack of security and with lack of fulfilment by the government. And although President Santos had begun peace talks with the last remaining group, the National Liberation Army, in 2017, these talks have now broken down. There are good things happening too. The troop commission is underway, and over three years, thousands of victims across Colombia and the world will have a chance to contribute their testimony. Several formal acts of recognition of responsibility and apology for atrocities have taken place, mostly by the FARC. In the municipality of Dabeba, where 200 members of the FARC demobilized, the local community, the FARC, the police, and the army are now coexisting, playing football together, and having reconciliation evenings where they light candles in memory of those they have lost, soldiers, guerrilla fighters, community leaders, all together. These are the seeds of reconciliation, and they are worth continuing to fight for. A society that has lived for 50 years with an armed conflict has naturalised this violence into their everyday life. Our emotions, our way of relating to the other, are affected by the dynamics of prolonged conflict. We feel fear, anger, mistrust. Societies need space and time to process such emotions and begin to feel, imagine and narrate ourselves in peace. This is something that government peace pedagogy can play a part in, but it is of course not the only ingredient necessary. <coughs> Civil society also needs to play their part. In my organisation Embrace Dialogue, we did our own peace pedagogy, engaging ordinary people and trying to get them to see that the peace process was a window of opportunity to rethink the future of Colombia. But this talk is not only about Colombia. Now that I've told you a bit about what I found while doing my fieldwork, I would like to end by suggesting some wider lessons in this moment in history in which the way that politics happens has undergone radical changes. Government peace pedagogy might be a useful tool for future peace processes elsewhere, but also perhaps in other contexts in which a government needs to communicate to a citizenry what we might think of as policy pedagogy. Policy pedagogy activates the distrust people have in their governments. So my first conclusion is that doing policy pedagogy implies rethinking the government-society relationship, recognising past government wrongdoings and rebuilding trust. But the face of the state matters. The messenger matters as much as the message. Secondly, government pedagogy efforts are most effective when done jointly with civil society organisations who can co-convene, co-chair and co-present information. This facilitates trust and encourages co-responsibility among the organisations who can become multipliers in policy pedagogy. The role of government is important in providing official information about a policy such as a peace process, but independent perspectives are complementary, for example from academics, community leaders or members of the international community who can help local audiences imagine what this policy may mean for them, free of the constraints of being the government. Thirdly, policy pedagogy involves emotions, not just rationality. It is necessary to think beyond a technical script about what the policy contains and convey emotionally the policy's broader vision and what it has to do with ordinary people including via strategies on social media, because this is now a critical dimension of global politics. Fourthly, transforming social imaginaries and overcoming polarisation takes generations. It does not happen overnight. It requires dialogue between all sectors of society, 
and for governments to continue supporting change across different administrations. This is difficult because, of course, when governments change, policies change. Civil society can lobby to keep good initiatives going. Changing government-society relations requires effort on our part too. Now, some of these four lessons may be applicable in other contexts, others may not, and I'd be very interested to hear what you think. I'm only just beginning to think these through. Um, I chose this research because I was curious to know who the human beings on the other side were. Now, it strikes me that Colombian distrust in the state, while of course very particular to a country in conflict and one riven with corruption and clientelism, it also resonates with how we tend to view governments in general. I remember the derision of my grandmother's voice while I was growing up, especially reserved for the word politician. But in order to make change in the world, we need to work together between governments and societies. That requires what for some of us is quite radical, looking at human beings in local and national governments with compassion and identifying which of them can become allies. Governments are made up of individuals and some of them are easier to work with than others. The current government in Colombia is not a friend to the peace process, but there are people in it who are a bit more sensible and embrace dialogues working in Colombia and the UK to keep channels of communication open with them, to, to try to protect the gains made and limit damage to the peace process. We need to work with governments and we need to design strategies of policy pedagogy from both government and civil society if we're going to fight against the problems of our new world order, climate change denial, rejection of science and expertise, and post-truth politics. Charles Darwin dedicated his life to working out his theories with painstaking detail, scientific rigour and comparison, and thinking creatively about their implications. And I'm very honoured to be speaking this sort of in, in, in the context of a festival dedicated to him. I think he would have been very concerned with a turn towards post-truth, and in a time of rising fear, hatred, anger and resentment, he would have stood up for science, research and knowledge. He, he believed very deeply that societies needed to find ways of collaborating together and standing in solidarity with each other and that that was what was going to allow them to progress in the world. So now more than ever, I think we need ordinary people like us to collaborate, to be co-responsible if we're to meet the challenges of our time. Thank you very much. Congratulations on all the hard work you did. I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thought you were talking about Brexit. <laughs> there were so many pointers there for us to explore. Uh, and what for me remained was when you talked about the language moving from words and sentences and ideas to poetry and arts and drama and culture that somehow bypass the problem we have with our brains and that somehow the communication about the challenges that the society faced were more easily explored 
the difference was more easily addressed. I don't know whether you feel that to be the case as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely do. I think it was it was a it was a very inspiring project, and I think that one of the one of the it had an advantage and a disadvantage in the same place, in the sense that the advantage of using art and culture is you take it out of the political realm because the problem of having a discussion in the political realm is everything becomes about votes and party politics and of course you know that the, the old you know i remember growing up and being told not to talk about politics at the dinner table because you'd spoil the meal and you know we had to talk about politics and you know in colombia that's even more the case i mean families who absolutely do not touch politics at the dinner table because it would divide the home and and I think we have to be able to talk about politics. It's ridiculous not, because we are all political animals. And the advantage of doing things through art and culture is that there is, as you say, a completely other language which engages us as human beings and, and not as people who are red or blue or green or yellow or white. Um, but the problem with that project was that it was, it was led by the government. The artists had free reign to do what they liked. But because, and that I think is something that is a great thing for governments to do, to give money and, and, and sort of impulse to artists to explore creativity, to, to put forward a message and just simply turn up the volume on their voices. Um, but at the same time, people saw it as a government initiative and that made it less trusted. But yeah, I think this lady had a, you had your hand up. Thank you. Um, I wondered how, how free, how free the yeah, no, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, officially, Colombia has a free press. There's no sort of issues of censorship. Um, but the main, kind of most influential two or three um, media houses are owned by very wealthy top business magnates who, of course, have also a lot of connections to some of the political, the top political family, in fact, top political elites. So some of them uh, were, you know, played a very influential role in, in the peace process, but mostly they, they transmitted sort of good information. The written press was very good um, in terms of communicating accurately uh, the peace process from Havana. Um, and as I say, they, they distributed freely the peace agreement in its full text um, but in a tiny little letter because it was 297 pages so how are you going to get that into an ordinary spreadsheet newspaper um, but then there, were, there was one um, Edisayoni which was, uh, it was one of the main um, radio channels and they were very anti the peace process and they actually had their own kind of parallel forums um, with members of the known. I think one of the problems that's happened in Colombia but also I see it here is that people who um, you know, that there was this idea of setting up an equal debate with representing two sides, like the different sides on a discussion, which I think is a good idea in theory. Um, the problem is that when um, journalists don't play their role of verifying the facts, then you have two sides of a debate in which one is saying, in the agreement it says this, which is true, because you can go to the agreement and see that, it, yes, it does say that, and the other side is completely lying. So that's not really a debate among equal positions. It's a debate based on truth and lies. Um, but journalism has sort of somehow, I, I don't know, in Colombia they don't seem to counter-ask the question, so they give airtime to polarising people uh, without being armed with facts. I mean, I always have kind of, you know, I listen to the World Service when I'm in Colombia and I, you know, listen to hard talk and you think, God, if you just had that sort of questioning all the time, it would be a completely different ballgame. But I'm sure that's happened here as well. 
kind of putting two views as if they were equal when actually one is one is not you know they're not equal they're two views and 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 this is not to say and I think you know the comparison with Brexit I, I'm very careful about this because as I say I'm not an expert now I know that there are many legitimate reasons um, and legitimate feelings for people who voted no in Colombia there were people who felt that they they did disagree with the actually they had read the peace agreement and they didn't like it and they were going to vote no and I think that's that's absolutely fine but I think that was the minority um, and I'm sure that that was also the case here and I think that um, you know that the, the role of the media has to be in asking based on facts and, and calling people out who tell lies because if you don't then you're giving airtime to someone who's telling lies and you're not doing anything about it but the regional media in Colombia um, are also very important and, and um, there are some wonderful initiatives that do very very important community radio which is in a country that has um, you know really rural areas, community radio is one of the most important things. And a lot of them did wonderful, wonderful things. So it's a mixed bag. Complex answer. Thank you. <laughs> Do you want to take three and probably then everyone can have an opportunity to ask and I can answer. Do you want to take all, because there are three questions, I can take them all and then rather than, okay. so everyone can have the opportunity of saying what they want to say. You just said something that the white man said exactly the same thing. For the, what, two days ago, yeah, called out the media, calling out, calling out sides of two debate, where clearly one side is talking, well, the technical expression I remember from Doug Sanders and all of those things. Now, two other, the, the, the two things that really, I think, struck me about what you were saying, about the context. I've been a student of Latin American history of a vague way for about the last 50 years. And I know that, generally speaking, Colombia is looked at as an outside, as somewhere that you know, just it's not really worth considering. Uh, I mean, once Bolivar said what he said about who he who rule America, which would plow the sea, um, really left, uh, in some places, left Colombia in this rather difficult situation. But everything you've said tonight about the, the debate in Colombia, in my view, accords exactly with the situation in this country over not just Brexit, but other political issues. The way adversarial positions are taken up, the way discussion does not actually come towards a consensus. I was brought up on the idea of consensus politics in the 60s. No longer exists. But there is one, but, and that's where I think you raise another crucial question over the question of how can you, how this peace pedagogy and so on are communicated. I felt there was a slight danger in what you were saying in drawing a distinction between government and society. Mm. Now, clearly those things are inevitable. There's an, an inevitability about that. But once government assumes a, a role of its own, separate from society, then there are always going to be problems. Now, my wife has heard this over many years, because she knows I am basically an anarchist. Because <laughs> um, government is evil. This is one of those cases where that is rooted in society, and it's got to be and it's got to be worked on. And 
if anything, the government's got to demonstrate that he's not. So I think that what stands out for me is this distinction between government and society, which has to be overcome in these processes. The idea that, that the government is part of society and not something separate. That was another crucial factor in the Brexit, in, in the Brexit problem here, and it is a continuing problem in a number of countries. And the other thing, as I say, is this question of Colombia's reputation. I think you've just proved to us tonight that Colombia has something to teach us in this country. Thank you. I'm so glad. It does. Yeah, I think we can take we can take all three because I I want to make sure everyone has a chance. So I've been speaking a lot, so. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, I agree. I think uh, Colombia perhaps does have something. But if you've got a country of forty-five million people and a team of ten trying to propagate what they saw as the truth about genuine belief about the process, then one wonders how effective that was ever going to be. That's the key to the thing. But it, it seems to me that the lesson here, um, it, it's very easy to draw parallels between things, and that's a trap, really, if you're very careful about that. I think there are differences between Colombia and Britain, which are quite distinct. But uh, the, the thing is that politics can succeed in bringing people together, and has succeeded. I tend to agree with you about governments, by the way, but politics can and does. And we've seen that in. in Many instances recently in uh, you know post-war Germany, for example, we've seen it in, in South Africa and, and many other places in, in across the world. But it, equally, uh, it's a two-edged sword, and, and the failure of um, uh, the Brexit uh, referendum and the, and the position we're in now is a failure of politics, as indeed is the failure of what happened to the referendum. Colombia was a failure of politics. And we're all responsible for that, not just the politicians. But yeah, society as a whole. Sorry, that's really a question. No, no, these, these are great, these are really great comments. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember my question now. Um, <laughs> with Brexit, with Trump, with uh, everything that's going on in Colombia, we seem like this this in the language, I think, like you were saying, this, uh, this rhetoric of kind of all valued traditional countries, especially as far as UK, um, America, and Colombia, as I understand it. Um, is there a way of bringing someone in um, to that, that is that, that isn't right or left, or that won't take opinions from one side or the other, that won't look at the propaganda, that can sit and write a paper based on the facts? Rather than what they hear in the press, is there is there not a way of doing that? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Can I just ask? Yes, as well. Look, um, I'm just toying with this idea about the truth, and it's coming from a very kind of uneducated point that I say this, but I'm very fascinated by the truth and how all our truths are different depending on our experience. And one of the things that I was taking from your talk is actually. It's that old saying that you know you need to walk a mile in my shoes before you um, appreciate how I feel and things. And so, um, a lot of um, our politics is very divisive, and you know people um, voting according to their own circumstances and experience. 
And it's not until possibly those experiences are shared, maybe that might be through art or whatever, but actually, you know, swapping lifestyles, swapping experiences, you know, politicians living in the northeast and seeing poverty, that there's fully proper understanding. And whilst we experience so much inequality in our societies, um, whose truth is it? These are all really, really good questions. I'm going to try and sort of converge some of them and, and, and see if I can respond to some of these points. Um, but I think, I think what you've just said helps me to make the first point, which is that being able to put yourself in the shoes of the people in government is not easy, um, especially if you have this kind of tendency to think government are evil, um, which is a, a, a feeling, as you say, has to be worked on, and the government has to show that they're not evil, fair enough, but, but it's very difficult if you are in the government, and this is one of the things that I realised um, working with these people, it was very difficult for them to go to a place where, you know, all kinds of massacres had happened and there was entrenched poverty and the mayor was stealing all of the money and, you know, there were these kind of repeated, you know, terrible things that were happening. But the peace agreement was actually an opportunity to try to take some very small steps to solve. It wasn't a maximalist vision of, oh yeah, tomorrow this is going to be Switzerland. No, it wasn't, it wasn't saying, it wasn't making false promises, but it was saying, let's, let's make some quite serious reforms so that the state can start to be better and that the state and society can start to work together better. And of course, that means getting better people in the state because, as you point out completely rightly, <coughs> state and society are not a sort of two corners of a, of, a, of, a diff of a completely different animals. The government is made up of people of a society and the people who we elect, they are a, a reflection of us. We are responsible for the politicians we've got in power. If we've got mediocre people in our governments, it's because mediocre people are going into politics. And we have to ask ourselves as a society, why? Why are our best people not going into politics? Why are our best people going to work in banks or finance or places where they can get a lot of money or other areas where actually it's much harder for them to make a difference. Well, maybe it's because they see that the state is corrupt um, and a difficult place to do good in. And, you know, maybe they were brought up, as I was, listening to my grandmother saying, bloody politicians, and, you know, sort of believing that they all lied and they were all corrupt, which, you know, it's, it's, it's an easy thing to say when you're comfortably sitting in an armchair criticising the other. But until you actually try to do something about it, you know, your criticism is an empty criticism unless you try to change it. And try to change it means going and doing it. And that's what some of the people who I was working with had done. They had saw, they had seen the state was not working. And you know, the failings of our state are minimal compared to the failings of the Colombian state. And they had seen that the peace process was an opportunity to try to change the state from the inside. And that's why you had people who had worked for a long time in international organisations, in academia, going to get a job in the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace. You had a lot of people, like my husband who's Colombian, who had worked, who had left Colombia, who said, I'm never going back to that awful country where nothing works and they get killed and everything. And when they saw the peace process happening, they thought, I need to go back and help my country. I need to go back and try to get a job working with the government or, you know, trying to help the state do this peace process. And so I think 
you know, it's complicated. It's, like, it's messy when you start working inside the government also because you realize that it's not easy. And my husband, you know, actually got a job uh, as a, a short-term consultant doing a particular project. And he was so excited because he'd been in, this, in our civil society organization for a long time. And, you know, civil society organizations, we, we do, um, we have complete freedom, but we have no money and no, you know, power. And he thought, well, finally, now I can actually have money and power and do things, do good things from the inside. And as soon as he got on the inside, he realized it was really difficult because you have all of these restrictions on you. You can't say anything. You have to have a receipt to buy a cup of coffee. You have to have a justification for buying the cup of coffee. You have to be really, really careful of every statement that you make because you might expose yourself to legal implications, political implications, political opposition. It's a big mess. It's really hard doing things as government. So it was really interesting to see those people try to change it from the inside. Um, and I think that you know when we say government has to show that it's not evil, I completely agree, but we have to help it do that. We can't just wait for it to do. We have to make it change as well. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was that um, how, how, to, how, to, how to tell the truth. I mean, of course, truth is relative. And how to um, bring somebody in who can give an independent opinion well, that was the kind of the catch-22 that the peace pedagogy team were in because they had to give an official opinion, but they also had to give an impartial opinion. But it's very difficult to be seen to be being impartial when you represent the government when there is a referendum. The only mistake here was having a referendum. That was really the only problem because if they had just been doing this peace pedagogy to prepare the society, the communities in rural areas based on giving them information about what was in an agreement, that would have been great, that would have been fine. You know, the problem was deciding to have a vote on the issue, and that's why I say that President Santos made a mistake, in my view, um, doing that. But he, he thought he, was, he had an opportunity to defeat the opposition, as David Cameron did. You know, I, I do agree that countries are very, very different, but, but there are those parallels. Um, so I think that the policy pedagogy, as I've tried to sort of suggest in my conclusions, that policy pedagogy is an opportunity for government to offer a fact-based communication that should kind of probably go in tandem with a campaign. You know, I think campaigns are important. You know, you have to have a simplistic campaign with music or smiley faces or logos. And those things are important because that's a way of condensing a complex message and transmitting it widely. But the pedagogical strategy is a complementary thing, but it has to be done with civil society. And the final thing on this point about politics can bring people together, but it's a two-edged sword. I really love what you're saying, and, and I, I really actually like the fact that you're kind of picking up on the parallels, but also kind of picking up on points that I've also thought about, about the complexities of how difficult it is to actually say that there are parallels between these widely different contexts. But I do think that politics can bring people together. And I think with my organization, with Embrace Dialogue, we've done that. We had um, a strategy to have dialogue with political candidates because we decided that it was stupid not to be able to talk about politics. Um, and that actually, we ought to be able to have conversations with political candidates for Congress um, from different parties and with each other and have different opinions that are different from each other um, and still believe that there was something valuable to be had by, by, by supporting peace together across these different political factions. And we actually had um, a series of conversations with Congress uh, 
candidates from the new political party of the FARC and groups of ordinary middle society Colombians in Bogota in a really middle class area, people who had never met the FARC in their lives, sitting down with some of the top FARC commanders who were now running for Congress, um, to hear what their political sort of manifesto was. They, they might not be going to vote for them, but to be able to hear what their sort of uh, proposals were was really, really important. And I think that, you know, the situation that we're in today across the world, there is a failure of politics. And only politics can get us out of it, I think. Yeah. So these were um, temporary camps that were initially set up in January 2017. Uh, with, I won't go into the technical names, but the first seven months they were for disarmament. So they were places that were um, set up by and coordinated by the office that I was working in, the Colombian government. Um, but the, at the end of that period when the disarmament finished, so they had a, a monitoring mechanism which was really incredible. It was the first time this has been done in the world with members of the FARC working with members of the Colombian Armed Forces and members of the UN um, all working together to verify the ceasefire, to verify that all of the parties were implementing and respecting the rules. And then when the, arm, the disarmament finished and, and the weapons of the FARC have now been made into um, art, art exhibitions, artworks, uh, in honour of the victims, in honour of the memory of the victims, um, they then became, again for a temporary period, reincorporation zones. So now the members of the FARC, they're not, they're allowed to move, they're, they're allowed to go anywhere basically, they don't have to be there. They're now ordinary citizens, they have ID cards, they have rights, they have a series of legal obligations, they have bank accounts, they have, some of them are participating in training programmes, um, a lot of them are engaging in, in kind of, uh, there are the, for example, the nurses, people who worked as nurses in the war, um, because, you know, of course, you can't, if you're an injured guerrilla fighter, you can't just go to your local hospital and say, hi, I've got a bullet wound, can you take it out of my leg, please? So they had really quite highly qualified nurses and doctors. And so they have been, for example, um, taking abridged training courses to qualify them as nurses and doctors so they can be nurses in, in civilian life. And so all of these sorts of things have been orchestrated by the government, but um, now there's a, 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 the institution that's in charge of reincorporation, which is an institution that has a long history in Colombia of dealing with reincorporation processes uh, of previous armed groups that is in charge of, kind of keeping track of where they all are um, and, and, and kind of monitoring the situation. But a lot, some of these camps have been abandoned. Two of them have been, um, uh, they weren't really suitable. They were really too far away and too in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, so they have been disbanded. Um, but other ones are, are continuing to work as kind of temporary settlements um, while these people reincorporate into civilian life. And a new sort of series of settlements have also been, been created. And they are run by members of the FARC themselves who choose to carry on living as collectives in these points. But other ones, other members of the FARC have gone to live with their families, have gone back to families that they haven't seen in 20 years, or have you know, started new families in new places. So they're, they're not just limited to these, to these particular camps, but they are these these places are quite extraordinary um, in the sense that they have been sort of pilot sites for their existence. I think reconciliation is a really a kind of utopic word, and I think we can have a discussion about reconciliation, what it means, but coexistence is a really fantastic achievement, and, and that is what is happening in these places, I think. Yeah, yeah hi. So, um, 
were the least violent years in the modern history of Colombia. Unfortunately, um, the good news ended there, and there has been uh, an increase in, in, as I say, in killings of social leaders. Uh, one of the main problems with this whole peace process was that there were areas that the FARC completely controlled. They were the state, they built roads, they imparted justice, they looked after people, they, you know, um, resolve disputes between quarrelling neighbours and um, and of course the FARC left those areas to go to disarm and they were left as vacuums so um, the Colombian state really failed, a major failure of this whole thing uh, was that the failure to secure these areas with civil and military state presence um, one could suggest that one of the large reasons why the failure happened was because the actual possibility of governing the country was reduced to almost nothing after the referendum because you lose power, you lose governability and Santos lost his, his majority and he lost his chance of commanding Congress because there was a kind of combination of parties he had a kind of coalition agreement, not really a coalition party but um, after the peace referendum none of the politicians wanted to touch the peace process so the, the whole thing became really difficult to govern um, so I think that's partly why, why there's been such a failure um, to, to do that. There are other reasons which would explain that. But yeah, and then, so there are other, the ELN, the other guerrilla group, uh, which was in negotiations. Um, they're a very complicated group. They're very different from the FARC. There are various reasons why it's much more difficult to negotiate with them. Uh, there were, sort of, there was progress um, under Santos. But of course, with the change of government, they just said, well, we'll wait until the next guy comes along. And, and um, President Duque, unfortunately, uh, took advantage of the fact that the LN bombed a police station in Bogota um, to, to, to break off the dialogues. And so now that, they, they, that's sort of spiraling back into war. And unfortunately, the situation in Venezuela is not helping. Um, the situation in Venezuela is, is of course, extremely volatile, um, extremely tragic. And, um, and there are, you know, the, the ELN guerrilla group is a guerrilla group that exists along that border and has moved a lot back and forth between Colombia and Venezuela. And so if something goes wrong with Venezuela, if violence breaks out in Venezuela, if there is an international invest in, in, you know, um, uh, violent intervention in Venezuela, that will become a cross-border armed conflict. We're talking about an international armed conflict. It's not probable, but it's, on, it's a possibility. And there are also these sort of right-wing paramilitary groups, drug trafficking groups, which never demobilise. So it, it's a big mess. But as I say, there, are, there, are, there is still hope and there are still reasons to, to work for peace. Just that we don't end necessarily in a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether it is maybe the last question yep. that you could answer. If you look back at the last two successful the um, Truth and Reconciliation, when Mandela came out and managed to keep the country together. Not only that, to heal it for many years. And of course there was the Northern Ireland Good Friday Agreement. And what were the features of those two 
that seemed to be a successful process. Uh, and I'm going to answer my own question, because I do think it's about leadership. We've talked about politics, but in, in South Africa we have, and in Northern Ireland, we had the, the uh, senator from America who seemed to be neutral and actually held the opposites together. And it is about how we actually managed to keep the opposites together, which you referred to. When you looked at or writing your pitch, do you draw on successful processes to try and identify why they worked? And I suppose I, I would go on to say that that it does come down to the human element of leadership and what qualities the leaders have. And those two leaders and those two processes, it seemed to me, were the major important catalysts that allowed the opposites to come together. I think that's, um, that's so important. I completely agree that leadership is, is the crucial thing. I think that President Santos um, did a really impressive job in many respects. Uh, I think the peace negotiations themselves have been widely regarded as the, you know, really, really quite successful. Um, they were difficult, you know, I mean, these were parties that had tried three previous times and failed to, to reach an agreement. And to get the FARC to demobilise was not, you know, that was not an easy task. And it took five years of very serious talks. It took both the government negotiation team and the FARC negotiation team to really experience what it meant to have a dialogue with the other that they've been fighting for 50 years. And really, I think all of them were changed by that experience. Um, I think the problem was not the negotiations. I think Santos was a very good leader for the negotiations. The problem was his relationship with society because he convinced the international community to really support the peace agreement. He drew on all of the expertise there is internationally in peace agreements to, to make this you know, the most solid, the most complete peace agreement since 1989. Um, but he didn't take into account how important it was to engage with his own society. Santos is um, aristocratic, he's a statesman, he's not charismatic, um, and he's, he's, you know, I, I listened to his Nobel speech talking about, you know, what, what it meant to make peace, and I cried. It was very moving. But I'm English. Um, I'm an academic. I'm middle class. I'm from London. You know, that, that's not what the majority of Colombians were feeling when they listened to his speech. They thought he was awful. They felt completely, you know, this was an alien person. Um, and they hated him. They really hated him. I mean, the vitriol that the Colombian, that a lot of Colombians felt towards Santos was extraordinary. And by contrast, Uribe, his predecessor, was a man of the people. He was so charismatic. He had the gift of people. He could, you know, he, he would meet, you know, people in the corridor in the palace, and he would remember ten years on their family's names. So they would ask. He would ask after the family, and he would talk with a kind of the, the, the local local way of speaking. And that's what Santos lacked. So Santos's weak spot was how to communicate the peace process to society, and that's why. I decided to do this research because I think actually government-society relations, and of course with all of the caveats about the fact that society and government are not two polar opposites, that they're mutually implicated and they are the same thing, but, but um, 
is you know government society relationship is a variable that in peace processes matters and it hasn't really been been studied before and i would end by saying that in terms of offering a leadership solution for the future um, i really think that that has to come from civil society and i think that that you know we live in an age which is not the age in which Nelson Mandela came out of prison. You know, we don't live in an age of iconic human beings. We live in an age of the internet. We live in an age of usernames. We live in an age of multiplicity of identities. And I think that ordinary people like us, like my group Embrace Dialogue, just a bunch of ordinary Colombians and friends of Colombia who got together to try to find ways to support the peace process, to develop a collective voice as civil society, not the government, not the FARC, us. You know, we have to um, be involved in collective leadership and the leadership of the ordinary and the everyday. And that's what I think our country might do well to us to consider. Thank you very much. Thank you.